0: This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out our podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash powerpulse. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Joining me on the show today, we have one of our regulars, Amy Myers-Jaffe, who is the Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School of Government at Tufts University. Hello, Amy. How are you?
1: Hey, Ed. Good to see you.
0: Very good of you to join us. And also, we have today, for the first time, I'm very pleased to welcome a new guest onto the Energy Gang, Emily Grubert. Emily is Associate Professor of Sustainable Energy Policy at Notre Dame University in Indiana. Emily Just for the benefit of people perhaps who might not know you, could you tell us a little bit about your career in energy? How did you get into the field in the first place? And what are you working on now at Notre Dame?
2: I uh, grew up in an energy family, actually, so my dad's a petroleum engineer, grandfather worked in the oil patch, great-grandfather worked in oil as well, actually, so kind of grew up around it and then started really getting into decarbonization. But prior to Notre Dame, I was actually the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Carbon Management at the U.S. Department of Energy, and before that, I was at Georgia Tech in Civil and Environmental Engineering, but I work broadly on big decarbonization issues, mostly in the U.S., really great to be here.
0: Thanks very much for joining us today. Now, there's three big things I want to talk about on today's show. Later on, I want to get to the question of being mid-transition, this theme we've been talking about quite a bit on the show in recent months, which is the fact that we're on this course from a higher carbon to a lower carbon energy system. But while we're on that journey, we still need to use a lot of fossil fuels and how do we manage that process of affecting that transition while providing us with all the energy services that we need? Then I also want to talk a bit about one of the crucial ways that a lot of people talk about for reconciling continued use of fossil fuels with a low carbon, zero carbon economy, and that's carbon capture and storage. And that's uh, something that, uh, Emily, I know you've been working on in the government. I'm very interested to hear a bit of your uh, experiences in government and what you learned there and, and what progress you think that technology is making. But before we get into those subjects, I want to talk about California. California is, I think, a fascinating state in lots of ways. It's a great state for energy wonks to look at, because in lots of ways, it sort of tells the future. It shows us where a lot of other states and a lot of other countries around the world are going. They're dealing with a lot of challenges in terms of rising temperatures, rising uh, threat from wildfires, physical risks to infrastructure, the disruptions that those cause, and also the challenge of balancing a power grid with increasing proportions of variable renewable generation, wind and solar. Actually, if you didn't hear it, we had, uh, as a guest on the energy gang back in July, the chief executive of CAISO, which is the California grid operator. That was a really fascinating conversation. And if you haven't heard that, I would urge you to go back and check it out. And when he was on, one of the things we were talking about there was the question of risk to the California grid over the summer and the threat of blackouts and how likely it was that the grid will be able to cope with increased demand over the summer months. And what we had a couple of weeks ago in California was that being tested in a very real way. We had surge in demand to record levels because of high temperatures, everyone using their air conditioning, and there was a real threat that the grid wouldn't be able to cope. But there was a response which was managed by the grid essentially, to get everybody to use less power. And that seemed to actually work pretty effectively. And the grid got through that, didn't fall down, there were no blackouts, the system worked. And I'm interested in kind of exploring that and seeing what lessons we can learn from this apparent success story. And as I say, interested in thinking about what this is going to mean for other parts of the world as they face up to some of the same kind of challenges that California is facing. Now, Amy, you're in California right now, is that right?
1: I am. And let me just say, I was here at the tail end of this whole Flex Alert system, and I did have to keep my air conditioning only at 78 or above uh, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. And uh, when the sun is glaring into the window at 5 p.m., at 78, feels a little hot, but you know, manageable.
0: And to be clear, you say you had to. You're not actually forced to do it any right.
1: Oh, well, I didn't really have to. It, it's
0: a it's a request.
1: It's a request. So they had a system, the Flex Alert system, and they send you a text message literally telling you what to do. and that could be anything from don't charge your EV, put your air conditioning at seventy eight, turn off your lights. Um, I asked people, did you comply with all of this? And everybody said that I knew, you know, sensitive people that I know said, yes, we put our thermostat at 78, we didn't charge our car, we turned off all the lights. And then I asked the critical question, which is, did you stop using your computer? And everybody said, no, 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 of course I still use my computer. <laughs> so assuming that they were on battery power, maybe that's not a big deal. But yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, complied and indeed... California to keep things stable only needed to reduce demand roughly about ten percent, and just to give you an idea, because most of the increase that comes was air conditioning. But the load typical California demand is thirty gigawatts, and the heat wave raised that to fifty gigawatts, so a sixty percent increase. They had to do that on September sixth, which was like you know like D Day. Um, They lowered demand by 1,200 megawatts, uh, averting the brownouts, Uh, but it cost, if you happen to be buying electricity on that day at that time at peak, it would have cost you $1,200 per megawatt hour versus the normal average for California of $100 per megawatt hour. And my understanding from reading is that the average price for the month of September was uh, 450 megawatt hour.
0: So this all sounds like great news. It's nice to be able to bring people some good news on energy for a change. The system worked. What conclusion do you draw from that? Do you think this is something then that we're gonna see more of? Is this something that shows you can uh, keep a grid stable even under these quite challenging conditions in the future?
1: Well, I think a couple of big takeaways. Uh, the first one, because you know I'm a big lover of a virtual power plant.
0: Just Sorry, just before we get into that, perhaps you should just explain what is a virtual power plant, just for people so who might not know that concept. So a virtual power plant
1: is when many people have rooftop solar or they just you know want to have a storage system in their house. So they have a small battery for their home and they agree to let the utility tap the spare capacity of that battery, or they themselves use the spare capacity of that battery, um, and that all those little batteries together make a power plant. So indeed, little batteries in people's homes in California provided 340 megawatts of power during peak demand during this problem. That's not nothing. When you're needing to shed 10%, you know, that's that's a pretty good chunk that came from those batteries, And the thing is, if you're thinking about the future when we're eventually going to be automating and we're going to have more batteries, because there's been a lot of increase in putting these kind of batteries in at the local level, I I think it's a really promising solution.
0: Thanks. So what's your takeaway, Emily, then, when you look at this? Do you agree it's a viable solution that we're seeing something quite promising start to emerge here in terms of the way demand response and virtual power plants can operate?
2: It's interesting. I think it's a cautiously optimistic story. So people really did pull together to respond to an emergency situation. And I think we saw a lot of infrastructure that California's put together to try to get those types of messages out when it's really needed. On the other hand, I think it's very tempting to look at this and say, oh, great. Then in this case, whenever we have a little bit of an issue, we'll just ask people to turn off what they're doing, et cetera. I think we really need to be very conscious of the fact that people are willing to step up when there's a really clear reason to do it. And when they trust you that you're actually going to deliver Deliver something for them. So in this situation where it's an emergency situation, we're still very early on in this mid-transition period. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I think fundamentally we're in a very difficult part of this transition in that there's a whole bunch of new climate issues we're dealing with. We're dealing with a long-term disinvestment and the new system's not quite ready to take over yet. I think people understand that and assume that it's going to get better. And so pulling together in one of these emergency situations to say, yes, we're going to actually help make sure that our neighbors are safe in this heat wave and things like this, especially after seeing some of the really disastrous situations we've seen with other power outages. So Puerto Rico right now, um, Texas in the cold snap a couple of years ago, that sort of thing. I think people understand that there's an emergency and there's a bit of a, a social coming together here. On the other hand, though, if this sort of becomes an every Tuesday night type of issue, I think you really start to play with people's trust in a way that's not necessarily all that productive.
0: Yeah, I do think that's really interesting. And as Amy was just saying, if you're there with your uh, air conditioning turned up to 78 degrees Fahrenheit and the sun streaming through the window, that can be pretty uncomfortable. I saw a comedian who I follow on Instagram had a funny kind of riff on this. She was wandering around a theme park uh, at one o'clock in the morning and pointing at all the lights were on and blazing. And she was saying, Look at this. Look, this is, you know, they've been asking me to turn my thermostat up to 78 degrees and yet there's all these corporations out here wasting all this money, wasting all this energy by leaving these lights blazing. Um, This feels really unfair. She used the analogy of the um, plastic straws. She said this is like a kind of a plastic straw type solution to the problem of energy waste and climate change in general, Um, putting the burden onto individuals, making individuals feel like they're doing something good when actually they're not, and trying to address a collective problem that has to be solved by society as a whole by putting the burden on individuals. I think it's not a great analogy because actually, as we've been hearing, individual actions did make a difference, did help. But kind of that sense, as you were saying, Emily, that perhaps there's going to be sort of um, action fatigue. It's something where people will are happy to take part in a crisis, in an emergency, but won't want it to become a regular thing that it is going to raise some new issues, I suspect.
2: And with the regular thing, I know when we lived in Oakland, we were part of the OM Connect program, which basically you got paid to do demand response. That as kind of a routine thing where you've opted in, you get paid. That is a really, really different thing than the state sending you text messages saying for your neighbor's safety, you need to do this right now. And so, yeah, not taking advantage of that trust and solidarity is going to be crucial, I think.
1: And Ed, let me make the point in different parts of the country, uh, you know, people have different attitudes. I was keynoting a convention of uh, rural electricity uh, executives and others from the big big utilities, and uh, I got this question about you know California flexing, and I wanted to try to explain how this is all going to be managed eventually by software and you're not going to have to have to go around and move your thermostat around or turn off your lights because you're going to buy into some program with a smart thermostat in your house and a smart control system and your utility will do it for you. And I was going to try to explain how demand management in California was the critical difference between what worked and what they didn't have in Texas, which is they don't have a demand management program. Um, so I was about to explain all that and how that helps you integrate batteries more successfully and makes more efficiency. And as the second I said the word software, 500 people in a ballroom, they literally booed me. Okay. Wow. So I had to take a you know, when you're a public speaker, you know, you have to take a step back. So I take a step back and I, cause my talk was about climate risk. It wasn't really about, you know, electricity technology. So I... I asked these 500 people in the audience a rhetorical question. I said to them, you know, I explained about this boost in sudden demand from the heat at peak and that, you know, it's very hard to manage for anybody. And I asked them in their utility, you know, regions, uh, in their service areas, had they actually, had anybody in the room, raise your hand if you've studied what either heat wave or drought, you know, constraining water or uh, freezes, have any of them looked at how their risks for demand and peak demand are going to change over the next, you know, one to five years, and have they put in standby power or other systems to cope with that? Raise your hand if you're already doing that planning, because, of course, this is why they brought me as a speaker to talk to them about what to do. 500 people, no one raises their hand. I mean, we're talking about utilities from all across the United States, and I said to them, "With all due respect to your blaming California, which also doesn't well project into the future what climate change is going to mean, you know, we all need to be starting to do this. Instead of working with historical data on, you know, electricity demand, we have to be making these new models going forward and thinking about how standby power is going to work."
0: And hang on, so, and so that was why they were booing. They were booing because they didn't like the idea of the kind of change you were talking about and this kind of... They
1: just didn't believe software was going to solve the problem. They thought that was right. kind of ridiculous, right? But I don't think it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I, we are having these inventions coming. And I think Emily raises a good question because demand management is definitely part of the solution. You know, you also have imbalanced markets, but that's where you're buying electricity from a state that's not having a heat wave, but as we now know from the heat wave world, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, the heat wave map in the United States was the entire United States. So the question really is the same in Europe. So, you know, the question really is, what inventions do I need? How do they need to work? How do, how do consumers need to interact with that? And, um, and like Emily says, if you're telling me every Tuesday, you know, I, I can't have air conditioning, you know, for healthy people, that's no problem. I mean, it's, I mean, I lived in Texas for many years. I can't tell you there were many days where, you know, I was without electricity at, you know, hundred degrees and I had to just walk around my house and, you know, put ice on my neck. But a lot of people, that's a, that's a hospitalization issue. Like you could die from that.
0: Good point. So Emily, what do you think about technological solutions to this? Are they going to be the answer?
2: I think the technological solution conversation is an interesting one, but I think we overlook one of the more fundamental things we can do here. And I've kind of been asserting this for a while, but building codes as a deep adaptation and mitigation measure for climate change that really fundamentally focuses on how we keep people safe in these environments is actually really meaningful. And I think we have a little bit of a tendency historically to think about efficiency and demand response quite differently. They are fundamentally different things. What I mean here is essentially that if you have a very, very, efficient building, you might not need an air conditioner to stay at a safe temperature. Whereas with demand response, instead of using your air conditioner right now, you shifted a couple of hours or something like that. But that fundamental reduction in how much energy you actually need to actively put in your building to stay safe in one of these situations is something that I think we need to be thinking about as kind of a safety measure even before demand response. Once we do that and on the way to doing that, because this takes a long time, then the demand response thing becomes quite interesting. But I do think we have a little bit of a tendency to jump toward the thing that looks more like supply-side interventions in the form of demand response rather than the deep efficiency pieces of it.
0: Okay. So I take your point on that. That all makes a lot of sense. But then as Amy was talking, I was kind of thinking, okay, so what we need to completely reconfigure every appliance in everybody's home, that's going to take a long time. And then when you're saying, well, actually we need to change the entirety of the building stock, it's going to take even longer. Are any of these really viable solutions on the timescale that we need to be working on in order to make meaningful progress towards, for example, a net zero goal by 2050.
2: I think so. And I think that it's hard. But one of the things that is really interesting to me, and I I do buildings work a little bit, but I think a lot of the time we've talked about deep building energy efficiency as essentially a way to lower your bill and things like that, not as a safety measure necessarily. When you look at a lot of those co-benefits and then think very carefully about where we're proposing really radical interventions in the energy system, I'm not actually convinced that especially for new buildings, really, really stringent building codes like the one we see in D.C. that's coming online, I think, in a couple of weeks, Um, And a number of other places are more radical interventions than assuming a power system that's maybe seven times as big as it is right now. And I think that that maybe is a bit of a a scale thing where we kind of assume that building a whole bunch more electricity generating capacity, like Amy said, even with this one heat wave, it basically, you know, on the order of doubled California's peak energy demand. If you can avoid doing that by having a lot of deep energy efficiency it's not clear to me that that's a more radical intervention than this massive, massive build out of electricity. They're all hard. And I think that that's one of the things that gets really interesting when we talk about energy transitions and climate in general. We're playing on hard mode regardless. All of these things are hard. There are some things that we would prefer not to do necessarily, but particularly for something like deep building energy efficiency, where there's this really, really important additional benefit that focuses on keeping people safe in their homes. I think there's a real call to really think about what it would take to do something like that.
1: And, and I think we have to look at, at the sort of social justice element of it because for me to just, you know, go online and buy an Alexa and get the thermostat and, and you know, put a little battery in if you're, if you're, I get a little benefit from my state taxes off and so forth. I, I, I have all these things I can do, but are those things available to the people who actually need to have... Um, cooling in their home, because we have a big energy poverty problem in the United States today with the high energy costs, where people can't afford to pay their bill. You know, you can work out some temporary arrangements where uh, utilities are either not allowed to shut them off, or the state or federal government provides funding so they don't get shut off. But we have to really restructure how we do pricing for electricity, and, you know, right now we have this wholesale system where we basically, if we have curtailed solar, like we do have in the state of California in the middle of the day, there there is curtailed solar. So, you know, or in, in, in Texas, so you have these uh, curtailed winds. So you have these crypto companies, you know, or data centers that swoop in and, you know, create demand because they get this really cheap electricity price. But then the way we're paying for that is when there's a problem, those guys can swoop out to some other location, but we're left with people who can't actually pay their bills. And I believe, and have said this in the past, that we need to reform how we do retail electricity pricing so that the burden is actually on the industrial user and the data center user and not on the small household of uh, people who are already struggling.
0: Yeah. And very interestingly, it does seem like Europe is going down exactly that road. There's a lot of talk now in Europe about reforming electricity pricing, electricity market structure for exactly those kind of reasons. And and partly, obviously, it's become an extreme issue in Europe because of the way that electricity prices have rocketed on the back of high gas prices. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch what comes out of that in terms of trying to design perhaps a fairer system for the electricity market.
2: Which is a really interesting point, I think, and just in the context of the system that we're moving to is not the same system we left behind. And so it makes sense that a lot of these institutional and governance structures are going to need to change too. So seeing how people are really adapting to where we're going is really exciting to watch.
0: This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out Atachi Energy's own podcast, Power Pulse where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems to advance a sustainable energy future for all. Recent episodes focus on opportunities for offshore wind in the US, the unique contributions of women to the energy industry, and the challenge of meeting EV fleet charging demand. Visit us at hitachienergy.com backslash PowerPulse. Yeah, One other technology I just wanted to raise quickly before we get off the subject is EVs. I wanted to raise this partly because I got some stick for some comments I made on the last show. We were talking about California again. Then we're talking about California's plan, which they've got to shift to having at least 80% of all car sales be zero emissions vehicles, that'll be mostly EVs, by 2035, and the other 20% could be plug-in hybrids. And I made the kind of snarky comment that it seemed like a bit much for California to be talking about making everyone drive an EV when they couldn't even guarantee that the uh, grid would be stable enough to meet the power demand that they had at the moment, never mind the increased power demand that they're going to have when there's a lot more EVs there. And um, Amy Harder was on the show, uh, the last show was making the point that it's partly a time of day issue. And of course... As we've been hearing, the peak hours when the grid's under strain in California essentially is 4 p.m. till 10 p.m. And as the sun's going down, solar generation is waning, but people are at home cooking dinner and putting on the TV and so on. And people can charge their EVs either during the day when they're at work or overnight. And they don't have to be charging them during those uh, peak hours of strain on the grid. But what I wonder is, do we think EVs can be... A significant part of the solution. As you're saying, when you're talking, Amy, about virtual power plants, there's certainly a contribution, presumably, that could come from there in terms of using the batteries in EVs as backup power supply. I'm never sure how the magnitudes of these things stuck up though and what the scale is like. If every household in California had an EV, would that make a difference in terms of being able to be much more flexible in terms of demand response, putting power back into the grid or enabling households to drop off the grid when needed? Or is it only ever going to be a marginal thing?
1: So, no, I think it could be a big thing. Um, You know, you have these two-way systems. Ford's already announced, you know, that their truck would have been helpful uh, during the Texas electricity crisis. So, you know, again, it gets to what I'm saying that I got booed about. But, you know, if you think about the car, listen, if everybody's going to plug in when they get home from work at 6 p.m., while they're having their pool filter run, and they get in their hot tub, you know, definite problem. Um, But if everybody has an EV, and we have system management, then we can charge the EVs at a time when wind or solar might have been curtailed. So I worked on the University of California Davis campus for several years, and the parking arrays were all solar. Um, There was a, a effort to try to connect those to People's EVs, eventually you would imagine a place like UC Davis would have um, all their EV charging come from the solar parking arrays. And and and, and so therefore you're wanting to charge you're gonna have, you know, a vehicle that's gonna know that it wants to turn on the charging at noon, um, because um because that's when there's so much solar. In California, they're exporting some of that solar now to Arizona and other places to use it. Um, And then, you know, a lot of people put their car in their driveway or their garage and they're going to plug it in to charge it, but you can have a timer that charges it, you know, at night when the wind's blowing and therefore that's also optimized. And then in a crisis, you can, you know, drain your car and rinse and repeat. So I'm going to charge my car with my solar panel at noon, and then I'm going to use that electricity in the evening from my car. So your car could be integrated with the house. And again, at UC Davis, we had this thing called the Honda House of the Future, which was a house where the car was integrated as a battery system with the house. And, you know, people live there and it did work. Um, So, I mean, that's a potential and it's a potential for California But as Emily says, it's like, what's the timeline for this technology? And then I have to train people. So I just took my first trip with my vehicle, my electric vehicle, and I went uh, from one state to another state. And I had to, um, I was definitely going to have to charge someplace other than my local fast charger or my house. And it was surprisingly easy. Like, I just pick one place to stop. So I did that uh, on the highway. But that turned out to be stupid because the first person I was meeting for lunch, there was a charging station right in the parking lot of the place we were meeting for lunch. So I could just have literally charged while we were having lunch, which would have been at noon, which would have been when the solar was highest and would normally be curtailed.
0: Indeed, indeed.
1: And I
2: think all of these are really, really important comments, too, of just you know, the system can do a lot of really exciting things if we design it that way. And I think a lot of the time we kind of lose sight of the fact that these are choices that we can make. But yeah, there's a version of the world where we have full EV build out that's kind of problematic for peak demand. And we, you know, structure our rates so that people are incentivized to charge during the really worst times of day, all those sorts of things. There's another world where we really start to optimize around vehicle to load applications, pay people for actually letting their cars drain, et cetera. But I think one of the things that's just generally important important about the energy transition is the good things that we could get out of here are not going to happen by accident. They're going to need to be designed, at least in some way. Sometimes that's like little nudges. Sometimes that's a really much bigger thing. But I think
0: like when we ask,
2: you know, are EVs actually part of the solution? They could be, but we need to decide to make them that way.
0: Which is an excellent segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is this uh, term you've been using a couple of times, I mean, being mid-transition, which I think is a really fascinating concept when you first used that, the kind of a little light bulb went off in my head and thought, yeah, that's a great way to think about some of the strains and difficulties that we're facing at the moment. I've been traveling a little bit recently, past few weeks, I was in Italy and then in Canada. It's really interesting talking to a lot of people about the energy situation and particularly getting a very sort of view from the sharp end of how it's perceived in Europe. Clearly, we're in this point where Europe is facing a very difficult winter because of disruption to flows of Russian gas. As we've been saying, power prices have soared in Europe. Uh, Gas prices have soared, although both have come down a bit from their absolute peaks of last month, but they're still very, very high. And there's a real worry that Europe might not be able to get through the winter without blackouts, uh, rationing of gas, depending essentially on how the weather goes. If it's a cold winter, then Europe could have a really rough time. So, I mean, what that tells you is that basically, Europe needs more supplies of fossil fuels, in particular natural gas, but probably more coal and more oil as well. And yet, European leaders are all saying they're absolutely still committed to the net zero goals. They're committed to the energy transition away from fossil fuels on that 30-year view to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And the way that you reconcile those two imperatives does not seem to be at all well understood or uh, agreed on at the moment. There's still a lot of arguing over what that means and what the right ways are to try and achieve those two objectives simultaneously, because obviously they do at times fight against each other. As you say, we're on this transition. It's a journey. It's not a smooth and fluid and always harmonious transition. There are bumps on the road. There are points when the cycles are clearly out of sync, and that can cause real hardship, and real difficulties for people and for entire countries and regions. So when you talk about being mid-transition, how do you think about that? And what are the implications you draw from that kind of way of thinking about how you manage that transition to make it work, to get where we want to go while maintaining all the things we want to keep hold of in the meantime?
2: Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think this is kind of the question of the next thirty years in a lot of ways. So the mid transition is a, a term that Sarah histing Simon and I started using in a paper that came out earlier this year, basically to describe this period that we're in right now, where you kind of have a clean energy system and a fossil system. Neither one is big enough to actually serve every single service that we actually expect from our energy system, but they're both big enough to constrain each other, and that can result in a lot of maladaptive ad- outcomes. It means that you're trying to to basically force clean energy into a fossil paradigm for now. By the time we get to a point where it's maybe more like a 70% clean, 30% fossil, probably the other way applies as well, where the new way that the clean energy system is working is constraining the remaining fossil that we have. But this leads to a really challenging paradigm where you basically have to be maintaining two separate infrastructures that are working together, but are not actually allowed to operate under conditions that would be optimal for either one of them. This is, I think, where this kind of emphasis on planning and really thinking about what are we trying to design and what's that end goal becomes really, really important, because we are fundamentally going to a different place with a fully clean energy Energy system on the other side of this than we're starting. Just having clean energy drop in and do kind of a one for one substitution of the exact ways that fossil systems work is not necessarily the way to go. I know, I think Sarah uses this uh, analogy quite a bit, but the notion that if we were transitioning from electric cars to fossil gas cars, people would probably freak out about how loud they are and be annoyed that you have to go to a gas station to fill them up and that sort of thing. Like, why do they go when you're not touching on the brake? But because we started with the fossil system, we you know want our EVs to go a little bit when you don't have your foot on the brake and stuff like this. It's this fundamental way to try to match what we are used to, but it doesn't necessarily need to be that way.
1: So so Emily, let me weigh in because in my book, Energy's Digital Future, I have a chapter on the early 1900s because I say that that's an analogous time to now where there's big transitions taking place um, and people had to get used to, you know, not using hay, right? Um, But I think importantly, one thing that people really don't understand is that in 1910 in cities in America, like a city like New York City, it was 100% electric vehicles. And the way that you got around if you were wealthy enough to use vehicles and not on foot or other kinds of, you know, horse or whatever, is you would call your taxi company. Say you're a wealthy young lady and you wanted to go out to a social event. You would call the taxi company and they would come pick you up and take you to your destination. And when the battery got low, they would go back to the central station, and they would change out the battery to a fully charged one. So it was sort of like you know, Uber Lyft for electric vehicles in the 1910s. And indeed, there were dozens of electric car companies. And electric cars were the dominant technology. And there was all, and when Ford created these gasoline power cars. He was thinking about them for a rural application. He was a grew up in farm country, um, and so people didn't like those cars. They broke. They had to be turned on with the crank. You know, I don't know if people realize this. The term cranky comes from how hard it was to start your gasoline car. In fact, people would literally break their arms trying to start the car.
2: Wait, and Amy, this is why people were marketing electric cars to women too, right? It was like, if you were dainty, you needed an electric car, I think.
1: Correct, correct. So, so we actually made that transition once. You know, I always say to people when I'm you know, working on that part of the book, I'm like, you know, it's kind of sad to think that if we'd stayed with electric vehicles in cities, we'd already be there now. Because we would just take this call to the taxi companies, and it would just be an app. and we wouldn't have to transition back out of all these gasoline cars now. So we've been through this transition before. People don't realize that. And um, I have to say, it can happen pretty fast. I mean, the COVID pandemic brought about, you know, e-commerce unbelievably accelerated the pace at which it was going to turn over. So, Emily, I really agree with you that this question about whether we're going to have really smart policy design, are we going to have pricing, are we going to do pricing properly to get people to institute the technology the way it can be at its maximum potential, this is a really important question.
0: So, having had some cheerful news earlier, then, I'd like to be cynical and gloomy about this one, which is to say that... One of the things that appears to be the case in, I was going to say in democratic societies, but actually, to be honest, it's the case in human affairs in general, which is long-term strategic planning is not something we're great at. And that if if what this transition takes to be managed effectively is really smart planning, that's a worrying thought. that in general, progress gets made by decentralized systems and lots of innovation happening in, in different places. And then the evolution of places weird things so. up.
1: It's a pricing issue. Ed. Yeah. So, so you don't necessarily have to centralize plan like China's doing with all these facilities, and we'll see, you know, how well they do. I mean, they had solar companies go bankrupt early too, and they had wind that wasn't connected to transmission. But, you know, the pricing piece I think is really a critical piece because we, like Emily's saying, we have all these malincentives in the pricing system for these different options.
2: Although to push back on that a little bit, I think pricing is something that works really well when the decision is actually at an individual level. There are much more structural things, too, that I think pricing doesn't actually address. So, you know, if we're thinking about a future that is fundamentally much more oriented around public transit or something like that, that's not an individual choice that people can make based on pricing to make that happen. Similarly, you know, if you go to a store and the only light bulbs that are being sold are LEDs that works pretty well. (laughs) And when we think about some of these things that are just structural nudges versus relying on people to make decisions in an overall context that's really pushing them one way or the other, it's not just pricing, I think, at a big level.
0: Uh, But how much confidence then do you have in the governments of the world to make those sensible planning decisions that you think are going to be needed?
2: Oh, right. I mean, I think this is one of the things that always gets kind of scary when we talk about climate and when we talk about energy transitions. Like, We could fail hard. Like we are already pretty much showing a lot of very challenging outcomes from the small decisions we've already seen happening. And I think that it's important to kind of keep sight of the fact that it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that we're going to successfully create a more just, fully decarbonized, sustainable society over the next 30 years. That's why people work so hard on this. But certainly like we don't necessarily have to succeed here. There's not like the Bruce Willis character that kind of shows up at the last moment and saves us all.
0: Bringing me to, perfect segue into the final topic I want to get into, which is exactly that, the idea that is sometimes proposed as the Bruce Willis character that turns up at the end and saves the day.
2: But Armageddon. But Armageddon,
0: thank you very much, yeah. The
2: full Bruce Willis catalog has a lot of this theme. I think he punches a <laughs> helicopter out of the sky and one, two, certain <laughs> crisis.
0: <laughs> indeed, indeed. So the Bruce Willis hero, whoever it might be, of this story in some people's eyes essentially is carbon capture and sequestration or use. It's something that then is the sort of the ultimate emergency break, the thing that we can use if we haven't managed to change the energy system and society in the ways that we would need to in order to cut emissions. There is this potential for being able both to capture emissions. Uh, at source, and perhaps even more importantly, to be able to suck carbon dioxide out of the air using various technologies, where it can be sequestered and or used to make other products, whatever it may be. It, I'm right in thinking, Emily said so that was what you were working at when when you were on the uh, when you were in government over that past year. Those carbon capture and use technologies were what you were working on. Is that right?
2: Yes, which we started calling carbon management largely to distinguish between those two really importantly different things that you were just talking about. So there's sort of carbon capture and sequestration for mitigation purposes, reducing the emissions that you would have otherwise seen from a process. And then there's carbon dioxide removal, which is sometimes a technology, sometimes a natural solution that really focuses on taking CO2 that's already in the atmosphere and taking it out forever. So two pretty different functions, but sometimes similar looking technologies.
0: And you were working on both of them though?
2: Yes. Right,
0: got it. Through your time in government and subsequently, how are you left thinking about these technologies? Are they going to be the thing that we ultimately find saves us from disaster, from catastrophic climate change that we're otherwise unable to prevent? Or should we not put too much hope in them? I mean, as I say, if that's our last resort, if that's the parachute that the world has to prevent climate disaster, should we trust in it?
2: It's a really good question. And I think this comes down to the question of what the system that we're trying to design might be. I know in the carbon dioxide removal space, and this is the one where you take CO2 that's already in the atmosphere and sequester it forever, whether that's in a product or deep underground or in a biological system, that's something that we really talk about as a way to potentially bring the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere down. So if we're at a particular PPM level, that's the way, that's negative emissions, that's the way that you actually could potentially reduce overall atmospheric carbon concentration. That's something that, of course, engages a lot of questions about whether there are kind of fundamental tipping points. So, you know, if the ice sheets all melt, just taking the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere down is not going to bring them back. But in other cases, there may be some value there. But I think one of the really important things about carbon dioxide removal specifically is that it's a scarce resource and it's a very precious one. And so when we think about the functionality of this, a lot of the time there's a bit of a sense that CDR or these negative emissions is actually a way that we can compensate for ongoing emissions in other sectors. So basically keep using jet fuel that's based on petroleum for aviation and we'll just take it out of the atmosphere. That doesn't actually draw down CO2 emissions levels But it does potentially keep the system in balance. I think the thing that sometimes people don't realize or haven't been told, because it's not something that's really all that obvious if you haven't thought about it or been told about what this actually is. These are all very, very resource intensive strategies and they have very particular limitations. So it's something where there is potential there. The scale of it is probably a lot smaller than a lot of people think about. And I think as a result, when we talk about net zero goals, really the effort needs to be get as close to zero as you possibly can. Think about potentially a little bit of compensatory CDR and then think about whether there's potential for drawdown past that. On the CCS for mitigation side, it's a bit different. That's a way to essentially reduce emissions that otherwise would have happened. It's not 100% effective. So if you put CCS onto something that's emitting CO2, you're not going to capture and sequester all of it Both of these processes are really energy intensive as well. So that's an entirely separate conversation, but they have their applications. They're not silver bullets by any means, and they don't have applications in every sector.
0: And the argument then, to put that same point, I guess another way, the argument I always find very persuasive is just that this is a large and complex problem and we are not in a position to rule anything out at the moment. And basically we're still given that we're actually at quite an early stage in the effort of decarbonizing the energy system, decarbonizing the entire world economy, we need to try everything. And we need nuclear, and we need renewables, and we need battery storage, and we need hydrogen, and we need carbon dioxide removal, and we need carbon capture of emissions as well. I mean, that's fair, is it, do you think? I mean, as I say, that seems like the most compelling argument for why we need to be pressing ahead with it.
2: It's an interesting question because I think, again, one of the things that gets kind of complicated about both mitigative CCS and CDR is that there, there are a lot of different applications and there are a lot of different technologies. In some sectors, I think we can kind of rule out whether they're going to be useful. And a lot of the way that I think about it is basically what's the other alternative to provide the function that you want? In the case of clean electricity, we don't necessarily need to have a coal plant that's equipped with CCS in order to provide electricity. On the other hand, there's not a lot of ways to make cement that don't result in some CO2 being released as process emissions from basically cooking limestone and driving CO2 off that carbonate. There's not another alternative for cement in the way that there is for electricity. And so as we think about how we devote scarce resources, really thinking consciously about how do you get to zero and then whether there's something else you could be doing instead becomes really important. I think one other really critical thing I just want to make sure to say that a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that when we frame a net zero goal, that presumes carbon dioxide removal. Either you have carbon dioxide removal or it's a zero goal. And so that's also kind of an interesting thing to be thinking about as we set these policies.
0: Yeah, great point. As you say, the, just the very use of the word net there in net zero sometimes just kind of slips by. People People use it without really thinking about it, but it's it's significant. It's there for a reason. Amy, what do you think?
1: Well, you know, one of the big problems with CCS as a technology, uh, besides the fact that we've had some, you know, bad starts where somebody tried it and there was a giant cost overrun and then it looked less viable. Is this lack of trust? Is the industry just saying CCS because uh, that lengthens their runway, but there aren't really coming up with a true, you know, CCS technology? You know, that creates a controversy because there are, as Emily's saying, there are technologies You know, the national labs are working on those technologies. You have some independent companies. Let me just babble on for one more minute. You know, there was a a group, a very promising PhD out of University of Michigan um, that is now a company. It's called Remora. And they have a technology where it's like uh, tanks on the back of the trailer of an 18-wheeler. And it literally captures um, CO2 emissions Processes them through some zeolite absorbent material granulars. The exhaust heats it. Then they refrigerate it. This is all happening on board on the truck and turn it into a liquid. And they say that they already have you know ten units on the road and they're hoping to gear up um, in the next couple of years. So so you could have you know serious innovation in this space. And so, you know, the fact that there was some email exchange between, you know, two people that might not be on board with the climate mission doesn't mean that CCS couldn't be a viable solution in, as Emily's saying, in different kinds of applications.
2: I think one of the other interesting things that I think about a lot when we think about carbon capture for mitigation on fossil fuel systems, that's a little bit different when we're talking about something like cement. Like With cement, because you have this fundamental thing that's not fuel related where you're going to get carbon driven off of it, it actually looks like a pretty interesting application for a limited and kind of boutique use of CCS as something that really helps with that industry specifically. With fossil systems, one of the things that I think I would love to see more in models and I would love to see more openly discussed is what that actually means we're relying on in terms of what actually exists still. And I think there's a lot of tendency to basically say, you know, we can put CCS onto a truck or we can put CCS onto a single gas plant or something like that. We'll use very limited amounts of fossil fuels. But if you assume that there's still a use of fossil fuels in the future, that assumes you still have all of the production infrastructure, you still have all of the pipelines or the rail or whatever it is. It's not that clear to me that for the limited applications that people talk about with CCS, that actually preserving all of that infrastructure to fulfill a pretty small role rather than doing something that maybe is a little less efficient or a little more annoying, but doesn't actually require you to maintain this you know, multi-trillion dollar infrastructure potentially is the right path. And this kind of comes back to this whole systems design question of what are you actually assuming is still there that I think we need to get a lot more serious about.
0: And as you say, your mid-transition point then about how do you maintain energy supplies through that period while you're shifting from one model to the other?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a big thing about the mid-transition too, is really being careful to understand which system we think is providing which service is important. Because if you kind of have a renewable system that's like, great, whatever, it's okay if we have a little bit of a lull day because there's gas to catch us. Or if you have a gas system that says, it's okay if we have to go off when it's really hot because we have solar to catch us, you better make sure that other system actually knows that you're depending on it to do those things.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. We do, I'm afraid, just about have to leave it there. Before we do, of course, it's time for our regular free electrons. These are personal things, sometimes related to energy, sometimes not, that people have brought in. I don't, Amy, uh, what have you got?
1: Well, and I have uh, a very California free electron. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, not only am I in California, but I, I did have to, or I was socially responsible and put my thermostat to 78 degrees. But Then, you know, it's hot in the house uh, because there's a lot of windows in the house. So um, at 5 p.m., it just seemed like a smart thing to go take a walk on the beach. And the beach was crowded on a weekday. And that made me think about, in terms of this sort of energy solutions, is the way we think about work and what time we do work and how we cope with weather, you know, like there's no, I mean, it'd be great if everybody could go to the beach at, uh, at four to six. But, you know, I'm just saying that, you know, people live in places where they could be in the shade or they could not be working at that time or, you know, thinking creatively about maybe in Arizona, there's just no solution because when it's hot, it's hot. But in some places, you know, maybe the solution really has to do with flexi time in terms of energy savings, what time do I commute? Do we don't all have to commute at once? Uh, what time do I work? We don't all have to work exactly at once and uh, and how can we interact that flexibility to not only get a good work-life balance uh, but to manage our needs uh, when temperature rises and falls?
0: That's a great point. yeah, I've often thought that the kind of rhythm of uh, the working day that some places have in southern Europe, for instance, where you sort of work, You know, eight till one, and then four till eight, or five till 10, or whatever it might be, and, you know, avoid having to work at the peak hours of uh, maximum temperature during the middle of the day is actually a very sensible way to live your life. And as you say, perhaps being a bit more creative about the ways, as we're thinking more about flexible working patterns in terms of where we work, maybe thinking about more flexible patterns in terms of when we work as well would be worthwhile. Emily, what's your free electron?
2: So, I just moved to Indiana. And as we're recording this, it's about 82 degrees Fahrenheit or so today. It was, you know, 72 overnight, something like that. Tomorrow night, though, it's going to get into the 30s. And so, my really exciting free electron is that I live in a 130 year old house with 130 year old radiators as my actual heating mechanism. I don't know how to use them yet, but I think I'm going to learn how to do that tonight.
0: I will look. Good luck with that, then. We'll all be rooting for you. That's a very practical demonstration, right, of your point about... Dealing with old infrastructure, how you move to a different kind of energy system. I mean, do you think over time you're going to replace that heating or what are you going to do?
2: I don't think so. So they're actually incredibly efficient. I would like to be able to electrify them, but the hot water system, you know, you can have individual room control of your temperature and things like that in a way that's actually quite hard with a ducted system. And so they're you know, better for air quality because you don't have a duct running through your house and you have very fine room control. So I think we're going to keep them. Just try to electrify them.
0: Well, as I say, good luck with it. So look, my pre-electron is about our new king, King Charles III, the new sovereign of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, who is also the head of state in 14 other countries, Australia, Canada, Jamaica, New Zealand, 14 in total. Really interesting figure, relevant to our um, purposes, because he has been a big advocate for environmentalism in general, but very specifically action on climate change. He gave Quite a punchy speech, actually, at the um, COP26 UNFCCC uh, conference in Glasgow last year, where he talked about the need to shift away from a fossil fuel economy and the need to mobilize trillions of dollars in um, private sector capital to finance that shift. He's famously, he runs his um, car. He's got an Aston Martin sports car, which obviously doesn't seem like the most kind of uh, environmentally friendly thing, but he says it is um, low carbon or zero carbon. Because it runs on a biofuel, which is produced from the waste products from cheese and wine manufacturer on his estates, which is, I mean, it's hilarious that, you know, the king has a car, a sports car that runs on wine and cheese is kind of seems intrinsically pretty funny, but is apparently serious. And he now is, as I say, head of state in the UK, these 14 other countries. Probably is not going to have very much impact. He is, of course, a constitutional monarch. He doesn't run the government. He doesn't tell people what to do. He may even, I think, feel a bit more constrained in what he says about a political issue like energy policy. Now he is king than he would have done when he was a prince. And we've seen just in the same week that he acceded to the throne, we had the actual government of the UK um, under the new prime minister, Liz Truss, pressing ahead with a series of initiatives intended to boost fossil fuel production. They've lifted, for instance, the ban on hydraulic fracturing that was uh, introduced in the UK in 2019. So that's probably a move in a direction that King Charles, the new king, would not approve of. The one area I do think is worth watching, though, and this is something which we're going to be following over the uh, the months uh, and possibly years to come, is this question of the royal warrant. I don't know if you know about this, but there's certain products in um, Britain which are officially kind of used by the monarch. And you actually kind of, and the, I can't remember whether the but a few dozen of them, which were basically products used by the queen. And if it was, as it were, marmite that she had on her toast for breakfast or whatever it was, then you could put a little royal seal on your product to show that it was approved of by the queen. And now new monarch has taken over. We have the king he has to kind of do that exercise all over again and choose the products that he uses in order to award the Royal Seal. And that does, I guess, create an opportunity for him to pick low-carbon products of various kinds, whether they're low-carbon in in their production processes or whatever, or possibly ones that um, are lower-carbon in their use. So, for instance, maybe we'll see the Tesla being by royal appointment, and you'll get a kind of, you know, the uh, the royal seal on uh, Tesla or some other EV, whatever it might be, saying this is the official car of the King of England. So that might have some effect, quite an interesting sort of um, bit of signaling there uh, he could do through that brand. So that's, uh, as I say, something I think we should be watching out for over the coming months is whether he tries to use that sort of, purchasing power and the power of that royal warrant to encourage low-carbon products. So that is now, uh, we've got time for it, afraid. We're going to have to leave it there. But thanks very much for a great discussion. Thank you very much, Amy.
1: Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here.
0: And thank you, Emily, for uh, joining us uh, for the first time and hope very much you'll be back again in the future. Thanks for having me. Thanks to our producers, Shakira Perez and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And most of all, thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. We're always keen to hear your ideas, comments, criticism, whatever it might be, even if you're attacking me over what I've been saying about EVs. Anything like that, we want to hear from you on. Twitter's a good way to do that. We're on Twitter at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with all the latest from the energy transition. Until then, Goodbye.